You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Canada is a country that is constantly changing, and I'm not always sure in a good way. Today, the change that has me worried is the reaction of some to the verdict in the Giangomeshi sexual assault trial. The man was declared not guilty on all counts. He still faces a trial in June, by the way, on other matters, but on the five counts, I believe it was, before him in court, he was found not guilty. The reaction upon hearing this, even though every lawyer you talk to would have said, this man will be found not guilty. Doesn't mean he's innocent. It means he's not guilty of the crimes he was accused of. It's not that he's not guilty of being a creepy date. It's not that he's not guilty of being a perv. It's that he's not guilty of very specific crimes. And yet outside the courthouse, there were topless protesters, or a topless protester. There were people screaming. There were hysterics that this man, after going through a trial that lasted months, really, when you consider the public and the courtroom time, this man was found not guilty of the crimes he was accused of. And yet you listen to some people, and they act as if this is, in fact, a travesty of justice. People here in Ottawa as well, you heard them on the 6 o'clock news here, saying, this is just wrong. I think it's ridiculous. These women came forward and were brave enough to tell their story, and they were dismissed for tiny little things, and it's ridiculous. Even though we see disjuncture within the criminal justice system, even though we know that it is a broken system, ultimately, uh, it is important for survivors to come forward with the reality that, you know, you may undergo a process that's going to last a couple of years, that your credibility is going to be put at test. Um, But it doesn't mean that your story is not true. It's really a myth that people are being assaulted by strangers. It's usually people that the survivor knows. And sometimes when people are having contact with them, that's their way of coping and that's normal for them and we shouldn't be judging women for that we shouldn't judge any woman for coming forward with the bona fide case of sexual assault and maybe some of the people that Jean Gomeshi has been involved with maybe there are bona fide cases out there but the cases before us in the court today didn't turn out to be we'll get to to that in a moment but Stephen can we just play the beginning again that woman saying this is really ridiculous let's just play her hysterical reaction again I think it's ridiculous. These women came forward and were brave enough to tell their story, and they were dismissed. Okay. Dismissed. And she said for sometimes small, inconsequential things. We'll get to that in a moment. But we've got politicians saying this verdict shows that the justice system has to change. Justin Trudeau was speaking with CP24 in Toronto earlier today. He said he wouldn't speak directly to the Gomeshi case, but then made comments that could be construed as him speaking around it. I think uh, these are the kinds of discussions that we need to be having as a, as a society that values, uh, values equality and, and respect for women. <sighs> Who does not respect women? I, I don't know anybody. Well, I won't keep company with people that do not. I know far too many women who have been sexually assaulted. I know far too many people who have had to deal with this. Most never came forward 
Most never went to police. And here we've got a case where we're having politicians say we need to change the laws. Tom Mulcair, outside the House of Commons, says, well, you know, I think that our legal system has clearly shown that it's having trouble dealing with issues of sexual assault, and I think we need a new approach. What would that be, other than presumption of innocence until proven guilty? Now, why wasn't Gian Gameshi found guilty? I have no love for this man. The last time I found him entertaining, he was singing about being the king of Spain back in the 90s. I find him pompous. I find him arrogant. I find him pretentious. I hated his show, which got a ton of my tax money to prop up his ego. And I spoke to people that worked under him who told me what it was like to work for him. I mean, he should have been fired for that. Never mind his creepy sexual antics. And at the end of the day, yeah, he's got some creepy sexual antics. He wrote them all out for everyone to read on Facebook as this was becoming news. But does that mean that he is guilty? We found out at trial, and I believed these women until the trial started. I believed them. And then you start reading the emails. You start seeing the text messages. You start seeing that some of the women who accused him of sexual assault and that they were afraid of him, well, they actually pursued him sometimes for months after, sending him congratulatory messages the day after the alleged assaults. Standing up in a karaoke bar after saying, well, this guy beat me in an intimate moment, and then you get up in a karaoke bar and saying, hit me, baby, one more time? You couldn't make this up. And what this does is diminish the real sexual assaults that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Christy Blatchford was on Ottawa Now with Evan Solomon earlier today. She put it in very blunt terms how if you have a case of sexual assault, you need to come forward quickly while your memory is still clear because memories get foggy over time. Maybe that's what happened here. But also you need to tell the truth because lying undermines your case. And we have someone in this particular case against Jean Gameshi who actually lied. Now, I can't be as blunt as Christy Blatchford ever, so I'll let her say it in her own words. Third complainant, for instance, you know, was in a last-minute disclosure, admitted that despite all the things she told the police and the Crown and the judge, she lied under oath to the judge. She said, I only wanted to see Mr. Gameshi in public because I never felt safe around him. After the assault, the alleged assault, well, guess what? She took him home and gave him a hand job consensually one night in her own house, in her own bed. So tell the whole truth. It may be embarrassing. It may be difficult to talk about. But for God's sakes, tell it, because the cover-up is what gets you in trouble, not the original sin, as it were. If you are accusing someone of sexual assault and telling the prosecutors who then take your case to court and prosecute someone on your behalf, that you are so scared of that person that you can't see them except in public, but then admit, well, yeah, I did take him home to my bed one night and we had consensual relations. How are we to believe anything that you said? Now, the people that are outside of the courthouse in Toronto or in the different activist groups around across the country screaming about this, this is how this relates to us coast to coast. doesn't matter if you like Gian Gameshi, hate him, don't care. 
This is why it's important to all of us. We are moving to the society, and this is the same, uh, the same ethos that permeates our campuses. And like it or not, the campuses of universities are where the leaders of tomorrow come from, the people that will draw the regulations we all have to live by, these places that believe in no free speech and safe spaces so you're not offended. Well, they're out there pushing the idea that because these women came forward, they must be believed. It's like Hillary Clinton. All women must be believed except for the ones that accuse my husband of biting through their lip and the like. We have the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. It is in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 11D. Any person charged with a defense has the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty according to law in a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal. That's in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. By the way, that goes back through common law and well beyond to Roman law. It has been a principle in the Western world for millennia now. And we cannot throw that away based on emotions that we find Gian Gameshi creepy or that all women must be believed, hashtag. Sorry, hashtag all women must be believed. We've seen too many cases of false allegations of rape. Look at the Rolling Stone cover story last year. They smeared an entire fraternity. They smeared an entire university with allegations that turned out to be completely false. Completely false. Not, oh, got off on a technicality because she kept calling him later. No. Allegations by a woman who wasn't where she said she was, claimed she was at a party that she was never at, that bad things happened to her. All put on the front page of a major magazine. Hashtag all women must be believed. All true stories of rape must be believed. But we cannot prosecute people based on public opinion. We cannot prosecute people based on emotion. We have to prosecute people based on facts. And one of the complainants is sitting there saying, I was too scared to see him, but yeah, later on I took him home to my own bed of my own volition, invited him into my own house, and had consensual sexual activity with him. We can't believe that person anymore. Gomeshi, as I said, has another trial in June. His life has been effectively ruined by this, by the court of public opinion, even if he's not going to jail. But as far as our legal system goes, we need to stick to our principles and not go with the mob mentality and, and worry about hashtag slut shaming that's being thrown around on the Internet by anyone that says, you know what, the judge got it right this time. I may not like Gian Gameshi, but the judge got it right this time. Justice was served. This is the way it's supposed to be. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
Do you ever get the feeling of being in uh, an episode of Groundhog Day, that great Bill Murray movie where I woke up and it was the same day over and over again? Well, maybe not the same day. Maybe we're just having, what Yogi Bear call it, deja vu all over again? There was a time when a prime minister from Quebec angered the rest of the country, particularly Western Canada, because he didn't care much about them but gave special treatment to Montreal's aerospace industry. That move by Brian Mulroney, then progressive conservative prime minister of all of the Canadas, that helped spark the Reform Party. The Reform Party, Mr. Speaker! If you remember Jimmy Stewart as our opposition leader, you remember the Reform Party. Well, Justin Trudeau is um, not yet committing to giving a billion or more to Bombardier to bail out that company to save jobs, even though hundreds of jobs were lost in Winnipeg at an aerospace company and they got nothing, even though thousands of jobs have been lost in the oil patch and they got nothing of a bailout. Trudeau's still looking at it and he has refused to say no. He's been asked about it since the election. Refused to say no. And now he's going around in interviews singing the praises of Bombardier products. We uh, believe in the future of the aerospace industry. Certainly the C-Series jet uh, is an exceptional airplane that uh, uh, I know is going to uh, uh, you know, show uh, Canadian innovation and uh, uh, quality manufacturing uh, to the world. Yada, yada, yada. Approved the Toronto Island Airport and they would have an order for 30 to 45 more planes. And it wouldn't cost the taxpayer a ton of money. But instead, we're going to turn around and actually subsidize a company rather than let a... Pri- they have a private sector solution. Porter Airlines says, we'll buy the planes. We want to buy the planes. Please give us a small little extension on the runway. These jets that they want to buy and fly into the island airport, just as quiet, if not quieter, than the turboprops they currently fly in. But the liberals who say they're all about science, well, they're not so big on that. They say they want to make fact-based decisions. They say they want to uh, make science-based decisions and listen to the experts and listen to the bureaucrats. Well, this was already approved in Toronto. It was on its way to being approved by the federal government without even holding meetings or hearings. They said no. There's no facts in that decision. It was done as a payoff to certain parts of Toronto that voted liberal. That's all it was. It was a payoff to their friends. They said no. That kills Porter's order for the Bombardier C-Series jet. It puts Porter's future in question. Maybe they'll get a bailout if they reorganize and headquarter in Montreal. So they won't go with the private sector solution, but they are willing to go with a billion-dollar bailout. Wonderful. It's one of the headlines you need to keep an eye on because these guys are going to take your money and redistribute it to their friends. I didn't even get in last night to another payoff to unions that was in the budget. There's money for uh, jobs training, but only to union-run job training shops. You're non-union? No. No, you can't have that trades training because what could you possibly know? John Kerry, meanwhile, the U.S. Secretary of State, he is busy trying to sit down with Vladimir Putin and negotiate peace in Syria. Yeah. 
ISIS ain't there, buddy. ISIS ain't there. The Al-Nusra Front ain't there. The people that are going to continue butchering anyone that they disagree with, they're not there. But uh, But John Kerry is. And he's meeting with his Russian counterparts. He says he wants to turn a cessation of hostilities in Syria into a lasting peace agreement. And in, the, in a joint appearance before the meeting, Kerry said, the cessation is successful, claiming violence in Syria is down as much by as much as 90%. I think it's fair to say that a few weeks ago, there were very, very few people who believed that a cessation of hostilities was possible in Syria. And we still don't. Not if you're paying attention. Look behind the curtain. I wish there was peace in Syria. I really do. I don't want to see more people pushed out of their homes. I don't want to see more people turned towards refugee camps or fleeing to Canada when all they really want to do is go home. But you also have to be realistic, John. And you're not being realistic. You and your Russian counterpart cannot sit there and solve this problem. No more then the Pope can do it by offering up prayers. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful, but it's probably more useful than what you're doing right now. Speaking of prayers, Pope Francis holding his Holy Thursday Mass, the washing of the feet, going on in the Vatican tonight. the hymns being sung as the Pope puts out calls for peace and understanding. If you've never been to a Holy Thursday Mass, and I don't know what happens at your church if you have one, but the washing of the feet, reminiscent of what Jesus did to his disciples, is truly amazing to watch, humbling to be involved in, and definitely something to behold. We are entering a holy period, and as much as I'll talk about politics tonight, Let's not forget that. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We talked about my opinion of where things stand with the Gian Gameshi trial, and I think this is bigger than just him. I think this is about our society's move towards a mob justice mentality, a hashtag shaming mentality, a mentality that says you're not innocent until proven guilty, you're innocent until I hashtag you and I feel offended. And we've seen this happen on campuses with issues like free speech. We've seen this happen on campuses with politically charged issues that you're not allowed to talk about. We even heard, uh, Stephen, can we play that, that woman again off the top screaming about how ridiculous this is? This is a reaction today to Gomeshi being found not guilty. I think it's ridiculous. These women came forward and were brave enough to tell their story, and they were dismissed. All right, so there you have it. Well, where does the law actually stand on this? Solomon Friedman is a criminal defense lawyer, friend of this program, joins me now by phone. Do we have the right number? Hold on. Hello? Solomon, are you there? 
I am here. Okay, I found the right button now. It is, okay. It is my own inability to use technology properly. So uh, I was saying earlier in the program that I fear we're moving away from our innocent, innocent until proven guilty standard, that we're moving towards this idea that, well, you're innocent until we, we as a mob decide that you're guilty. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, we've had hundreds of years of common law precedent that is built on the presumption of innocence, the fact that uh, you remain innocent until the state proves otherwise. Uh, but we are absolutely seeing, you know, this public uproar that wants to cast that aside. How did you feel then about uh, the Gomeshi verdict? I mean, the, the judge chastised one of the complainants for actually lying on the stand. Uh, another complainant... Um, you know, saying, well, this guy assaulted me, hit me, you know, I didn't like it. She keeps seeing him, keeps trying to see him, and then ends up saying, hit me, baby, one more time at karaoke. I I don't see how you arrive at a a, a verdict other than, I'm sorry, not guilty, ladies. Well, I don't think that anyone who doesn't have a deep prejudice and bias here was at all surprised by this verdict, or unhappy with the verdict, for that matter. You know, justice worked exactly as it should. Our justice system did what it is supposed to do. And what it's supposed to do is to weed out the frivolous and unfounded criminal allegations. And and that's what happened here. You have to remember that the criminal justice system, you know, isn't a mechanism for determining what happened or what didn't happen. It's about determining whether or not we are able to take away somebody's liberty, and in this case, brand them a sex offender. So, you know, the judge was extremely critical of the actions of all three complainants. One, he outright said, lied under oath. The other two, he came as close as you can come to accusing someone of perjury, uh, which is a, a criminal offense, without using the word perjury. He called them all deceptive. He said that they weren't frank, they weren't fair, and they weren't truthful with the court. You know, really castigated them. And, you know, it, and it was so bizarre in terms of this contrast. You have protests on the outside saying, you know, hashtag, I believe women, hashtag, I believe survivors. On the inside, the judge is saying the Crown has failed to prove that a single one of these uh, uh, women survived any sexual assault of, of any kind. So, you know, completely, completely oblivious it, to what's actually going on in the courtroom. In fact, as we found out, and I said off the top, I, my initial reaction because of stories I had heard anecdotally, because of people I've interviewed, every media outlet, when this story broke, when Gian Gomeshi put his weird uh, sexual preferences up on Facebook for the entire world to read, and then the Toronto Star broke the story. Every media outlet in Canada started chasing this story and said, there's got to be more here. And we all talked to different people. And you know what? Quite often, I, I, I know in my case, I interviewed someone. I know in the case of other media outlets, they interviewed people. And the lawyer said, we, we can't put that out there because we don't have the proof. Media outlets refused to publish cases because there was no proof. And in this case that went before the courts where the prosecution had the ability to correct me if I'm wrong these emails that the defense put out there showing these women sending messages to Gomeshi after they claimed they'd stopped talking to them or after they they claimed he assaulted them the prosecution would have had access to all of those emails and others as well wouldn't they have uh, they, they would have. As I understand it, in this case, these emails were obtained by way of a special court application brought by the defense, uh, which can be brought in, in cases where material resides in the hands of a third party, like an email service, for example, uh, that has material bearing on the case. But, you know, I, 
when, when people criticize the prosecutors and say, why didn't they better prepare these witnesses? We have to remember the prosecution, you know, they're not civil lawyers for the plaintiff trying to win a big jury award. They are there to do one thing and one thing alone, and that is to put the evidence before the court and see that justice is done. It's actually not their job to, at the end of the day, triumph. In fact, what we say about Crown prosecutors, and I'm deeply honored to know many Crown prosecutors who believe in this, is that the Crown neither wins nor loses. The Crown's job is to put the evidence fairly before the trial judge. So, in fact, it probably would have been improper had the Crown well, you know, done what we could say in the vernacular, would shed at these witnesses to try to get a more favorable version of events. The Crown did exactly what they're supposed to do. Let the judge and court and the public see these women warts and all. I actually applaud them for the job that they did. It really, This case really does show the difference between the court of public opinion and media hoopla, which I'll admit to have been part of, um, and evidence before an impartial body. Because I, I think an awful lot of people, when these allegations came forward, were going, oh, really? This guy is done for. But then you let the evidence stand in an impartial way. And as you said, anyone that doesn't have an ax to grind in this is going to say, yep, the court got it right. You know, our, our justice system, when it works the way it should, uh, is really a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm tremendously privileged to be able to practice law in the courts in this province, in the Ontario Court of Justice, the same uh, jurisdiction level of court uh, that delivered this verdict today. When it comes to, to our courts, and there's, you know, there's this often very shrill uh, accusation that the courts are somehow unfair to sexual assault complainants, that, that people aren't properly prepared, they don't know how to navigate the system, we, we hear that often. You know, what the judge said in this case was very interesting. He said, you know, one of the complainants said that I didn't know how to navigate the system. He said, navigating this sort of proceeding is really quite simple. Tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if you do that, you're going to be fine. That, that's your only job as a witness in a criminal trial. Sit in that witness box, tell the truth, and answer questions. It's when you deviate from the truth and you try to mislead a court of law that a good defense lawyer, and uh, Gian Gomeshi was lucky to have you know, among the very best, will eviscerate you and find every lie in your story. If you're telling the truth, then navigating it should be a very simple matter. I think we need to get back to um, to civics education, though, as far as um, people understanding. I, I think we used to hear it said often, uh, innocent until proven guilty. And I think we need to, to get that sort of thing back into our, our civics lessons. I'm not sure what they're learning. You, know, <clears throat> you look at um, what Blackstone said, better that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent person suffer. If we went to the mob mentality, uh, Solomon, we would have lots of innocent people going to jail. Without a doubt. And our system is premised on our love of liberty and our fear of government and our mistrust of the state. We do not want a system where, you know, if an Internet poll says you're guilty, well, we take away your liberty and we brand you a sex offender. We need to have evidence tested before an independent tribunal. We are lucky to have uh, very, very effective courts who take their role extremely seriously. And we, we see that in the verdict, and not just in the results, by the way. You know, the, the, the mob instead of howling on Twitter, should go and read the lengthy and detailed decision that examines every aspect of these uh, witnesses' evidence. Justice Horkins did not simply, you know, jump up and say, not guilty. He critically analyzed their evidence. 
from every angle, with the assistance, obviously, of the submissions of the defense counsel and the prosecution in arriving at its conclusion. But, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, how many of these people who are howling out there on social media have even taken the time to read his honor's decision? Most likely, none. Solomon, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Solomon Friedman, criminal defense lawyer based here in Ottawa. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Stick around. Plenty more to come on the show. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. An issue that I know is near and dear to the hearts of the CFRA nation is how we treat our veterans in this country. Whether we're talking about the remaining World War II veterans, those that fought in Korea, those who are now seniors and need special care, or the newer veterans who are part of the wave of soldiers that came through Bosnia, Kosovo, please, let's not forget that, or that came through Afghanistan, folks now serving in the Middle East. How we treat our veterans says an awful lot about us as a country, and we've been struggling with how to deal with issues such as PTSD. The military has taken great strides. I mean, they used to fly guys, um, the soldiers in from Afghanistan, and within 24 hours of being in the battlefield, they'd be back home. And apparently that freaked a lot of people out. You know, one day, imagine it, Tuesday, you're in the middle of the battlefield. You're in a firefight with the Taliban. And then Wednesday at noon, you're having lunch with your wife and kids. And you're not going to be a little twitchy. There was no decompression time. And so they started to work that in. Instead of leaving right away, you'd leave, you'd go to Cyprus, you'd have have some downtime, you would have, from every guy I talked to, a lot of drinking, which may not have helped the situation. They would have some talks, some courses, some beach time, and then home. Let everyone decompress. The idea being, try and minimize stresses. But still, PTSD persists. Well, this morning, Bill Carroll was able to, um, to speak with Dr. Manuela Ioannou. I think I'm saying that right. She's leading uh, a group in Perth offering a new type of treatment known as the SPARTA program. This is brought up from the United States, and it turns out that Bill actually knows somebody who has dealt with the SPARTA program, but before they had to go to the United States. Now it's coming to Canada. Here's Bill Carroll's interview from the Morning Rush with Dr. Manuela Wanu. What inspired you to get involved in this? Well, I'm a family physician and an emergency physician. I've been working in Perth and a number of other emergency departments over my career, and I have had a great respect for our comrades, our police officers, and our paramedics and our firefighters, as well as our military. Um, very much respect for them, and I also recognize what it is that they go through on their day-to-day jobs. And very often they see things that nobody should ever have to see, and they have to deal with them. And after a while, sometimes that starts to get to you. And I've had some close friends and colleagues who have been suffering, and I have come to the realization that we don't really have a very great program here to treat PTSD and first responders. So what's different about this program? What do you think about it makes it work? 
Well, first of all, it's a program that truly recognizes that PTSD is a moral injury. So it's an injury that affects your heart and soul, not just your head and your thoughts and your body and all the symptoms that you get from it. So that's what makes it really different. Wow, I've never heard it put that way before. That That's really well said. Well, this is the most important part, I think, of treating this type of um, condition. And if you don't address the moral injury, I think you're just kind of missing the most important part of it. So this feeling that how can I, how could this world exist? How could this happen? Exactly. Wow, and that's a deep psychological scar, right? Because that, that's who it, it offends who you are and who you thought you were and what kind of world you thought you lived in. Absolutely, absolutely. There's so, a lot of reconciliation that has to happen when you come across things that just don't sit right with your moral fiber. So I'd imagine when you sit down with a group of other people who are feeling the same thing, just hearing so I mean, just for me hearing that out loud kind of changed something. Is that, is that part of the key of it, is just recognizing what it is, being able to talk about it and understand other people are going through the same thing? Yes, it certainly is. And we do know that healing happens when you're able to get into a cohort of people who've been through very similar experiences. And is it enough, really five and a half days? Is it enough? Um, it's absolutely enough to give you an introduction to a whole new way of looking at your world. It's a start. It's a way to introduce you to a place where you can go for ongoing healing. So there are probably some people out there right now, first responders, soldiers who are suffering this moral injury and they need help or family members who recognize it in someone they love. How do you get involved in the program? Well, first of all, we're doing a huge fundraiser at the Gallipo Centre Theatre on April the 23rd. It's going to be a Yuck Yucks comedy show and a gala dinner. And we're raising funds so that we can bring the Sparta team to Canada. We have our first cohort scheduled to begin May the 8th here in Perth. So we are looking for support. We would love people to come out to our show and learn more about the program. Well, it's a great cause. And if they'd like to know more about the event, they can contact Tina at Creative Relations Event Planning on Facebook or at 283-2697. Or you can check us out on Twitter where Project Trauma Support is the name of our organization, or PTS for short. If anyone wants to contact me to find out more about the program or find out how they may get involved or even apply to be in our first cohort that starts May 8th, um, my phone number here in Perth is 267-9888. All right. Maybe, Tom, we can get all that information together and put it on our website, too, to make it easier for people. Thank you, Doctor. We appreciate it. Good work. Thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate this opportunity. Dr. Manuela Joano, trying to help survivors of PTSD and uh, help make sure they remain survivors. All right. And the more that we can do for our veterans, the more we can do for those who are suffering from things like PTSD, the better. Uh, I've been proud to have worked with different groups over the years, uh, included, you know, wounded warriors, uh, helping get their message out. I know uh, people like Dan McTague uh, involved with that group. And I know also, unfortunately, one of the the former spokesmen for that group ending up uh, succumbing to um, his his own demons in some ways. Thankfully, still with us, last I checked, but, you know, having to... um, admit that uh, some of what he had been trying to help others cope with had struck him as well. And it's sad to see. There has to be more than, and, and what I applaud this program for, is that we can't just say, well, it's up to the government. That really can't be our, our answer for much of anything. 
especially when it comes to caring for people. Caring for people is not something that government does well. There are things governments do well. This isn't one of them. Bureaucrats are, at the end of the day, bureaucrats. We have to be involved as communities. We have to come together. And it's one of the things I've loved over the last several years with the resurgence of pride in the military is watching fundraisers for wounded warriors take off, watching the True North dinner become something that people want to be a part of, that companies want to be a part of. I remember the early 90s. I remember what it was like. I wasn't there when uh, soldiers were told you can't wear your uniform to work anymore. But I was in the reserves, and before that I was in cadets, where you would be jeered walking down the street in the uniform. That doesn't happen anymore. And if you think it didn't happen in Ottawa, well, once upon a time it did. I had a friend who was told, nope, carry your uniform to work. You can change when you get here. And it's not because there was an attack. This, I'm not talking about a year or so ago when there was a terrorist attack. I'm talking about the, that the um, public perception of the military was so low at one point that that's what they had to deal with. Thankfully, that's not the case anymore. Thankfully, that is not the case. We look after our military. We take pride in them. And the more that we can do to help those wounded, especially with the unseen wounds, the mental wounds, the PTSD, the better. I have to say it's been wonderful watching some of this happen uh, throughout the community, whether we're talking about at football games or hockey games across the country, the CFL, the NHL getting very involved along with media. And we need to keep that up. But kudos to, let me bring up her name again, Dr. Manuela Wanu, leading this group in Perth with the Sparta program. Get in touch with them if you want to find out more. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Ezra Levant's going to drop by. Got a bit of a surprise for him. Don't let him know. We'll talk about what's burning up at the Rebel. John Robson and what are nurses in Ontario being told? That'll come up later in the next hour as well. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Everyone just love the love boat. <laughs> Playing that is enjoyed by my friend, my uh, fellow rebel at large, the rebel commander himself, Ezra Levant. And if you want to go cruising with two hunka hunka burning loves, Ezra, you can go cruising with us, right? <laughs> that's right. You know, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't tell you I was playing that off the top. <laughs> no, that's hilarious. Well, we've tried this before. At, at the Sun News Network, and I did it way back in the day, the Western Standard. Basically, folks who like to cruise, and Canadians love going on cruises in the wintertime. Well, this is a little different. We call it a seminar cruise because we take our top on-air talent, you, me, Faith Boldy, uh, and Sheila Gunn-Reed, and then some of our, of our favorite guests to have on, too. And we just spend the week together on the ship. So when we're at sea, we have these seminars, these Q&A sessions. We have dinner each night together. When we're in port, we, we have nothing scheduled, so we go and have fun. It's great for people who love to talk politics but love to have fun. Let me recommend it. Check it out. 
therebelcruise.ca. Thanks for letting me make a pitch. Not a problem. We're going to Grand Turk, San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, Phillipsburg and St. Martin, and Half Moon K in Bahamas, all in late November, as you said, rebelcruise.ca. Listen, I, I want to bring you on and talk about a couple of things that are, are burning up at the Rebel this week. They're burning up everywhere, uh, issues of terrorism, the budget, and strangely, and this is unique to the Rebel, uh, some of the stories I've been doing about um, our labor minister not having a clue about union corruption or the special deals given to unions, those are doing really well on the Rebel. Let's start with terrorism. Uh, we, the fact is we've we've got a government that's refusing to say we're at war with with ISIS. I had Warren Kinsella on last night saying these guys are all wet behind the ears on this. Of course we are. Well, it's so strange because the entire world is starting to wake up to the reality. I mean, Brussels was a huge shock. And that came after a terrorist attack the week before in Turkey. And, of course, the Paris attacks in November. And, by the way, we had a, a stabbing by a uh, a Somali Canadian Muslim in Toronto just last week who went into a Canadian Armed Forces recruiting center and said, I'm doing this for Allah. That's what he said. Folks, we got to deal with this. Most of the world is waking up to it. But Canada's going the other way. Not only did we quit the anti-ISIS coalition, we're making our anti-terrorism laws weaker. Uh, only $8 million for counterterrorism in the entire budget. Compare that to you know, almost a billion new dollars for the CBC. We are going the wrong direction. What really irks me is, like you say, they won't even use the words we're at war. Uh, a couple of days ago, Harjit Sajjan, the defense minister, when he was asked about Brussels, said, uh, I can't talk now. Why? Are you busy going to a briefing? No. He said, I'm going to have pizza with my kids, so I won't even say anything about an attack on a fellow NATO well, ally. I, I, tried to ask, I tried to ask John McCallum about genocide. This was before the Brussels uh, attack happened. This was on Monday. I tried to ask him, you know, why isn't Canada calling what's going on genocide? He walked away from me twice. Stefan Dion uh, later saying that uh, th- this isn't genocide and don't call it that. And, you know, this is a serious matter. But, you know, people you know, and, and, and let's not kid ourselves. The genocide going on in Iraq and in Syria is connected to the terrorist attacks happening in Toronto, in Brussels, in Turkey, in Baghdad, everywhere. It's all connected. Asked about specifically targeting of Christian, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims, which is what the United States and the European Union have both said. So for all those people, oh, I don't want to stand up for Christians. They even said Shiite Muslims being targeted because they're the wrong kind of Muslims. Yeah. This government just, no, we don't want to say anything. The EU said it. The U.S. has said it. The Vatican has said it. I think it's time for Canada to do the same, Ezra. Yeah, well, I mean, Islamic State says it, too. I mean, they literally put out propaganda videos showing them slitting the throats of Coptic Christians. Those are Arab Christians in Egypt because they're Christian. And there's a a small minority religion called Yazidis. The men are killed. The women are taken as rape slaves. You know, it's funny because this liberal government has no problem calling Canada guilty of genocide against their aboriginal people. Of course, no such thing happened there. Thank God it didn't happen. There's more than a million aboriginal people in Canada. But a real genocide where the genocide heirs will say, yes, we're doing it. For some reason, Stefan Dion and Justin Trudeau don't want to hurt the feelings of terrorists. Well, it's it's dangerous, it, and it's in the wrong side of history. It, it would require action if they said that. A- after speaking to people, they've told me, look, this is going to require action. If you say genocide, you have a legal responsibility to do something. You mentioned only $8 million new dollars in this budget for counterterrorism, but $675 million over five years 
for CBC. New Abacus data poll out just within the last hour or so. They asked people about this. There are more people opposed to this than support it. And then you got 33% in the middle going, eh, but only 10% strongly support 675 million new dollars for our state broadcasters. 17% say, I kind of support it. But 25% oppose and 14% strongly oppose this. I'm not surprised. I mean, neither. I mean, on their best nights, CBC's The National gets maybe a million viewers. But that's out of a country of 35 million people. So it's not that important in our lives. We get so much media from so many news sources, especially on the Internet. So it's not important to people. Uh, People are are worried about this overspending, and people know this is just a payoff from Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to their auxiliary campaign team. And, I mean, I don't don't think it's a secret that if you want to understand this budget, sort of a Rosetta Stone, a decoder ring, just say, well, who supported the Liberals in the last campaign? Public sector unions, uh, trial lawyers, the CBC, and look at that, boom, Huge gifts and Aboriginal chiefs. Meanwhile, the whole the whole media business is changing. Uh, you've got what we're doing at the Rebel. You've got things like Crave TV, which are out now. So, I mean, for us, you want to watch the Rebel? Just launched a um, a subscription based service, membership based service. Crave TV doing the same thing. You've got Netflix. This is the future. As people say, you know what? I want to watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. And, and it's not about a, a national state broadcaster. Well, exactly. I mean, the, the cable, the CRTC and the cable companies are moving to pick and pay where you sort of choose whatever you want. But none of us have that right with the CBC. I can't pick not to pay the $675 million bucks. We, You're so right. We set up this premium membership in the Rebel. It's a little bit cheaper than Netflix. It's 8 bucks a month. Hey, if you don't like it, don't spend a dime on it. If you like it, all right, eight bucks a month. I think folks can can handle that, especially if they get to choose. It bugs me that my show, which is behind this premium paywall, has to compete with the CBC, but they they get their paywall money through taxes. So no private sector broadcaster like you on CFRA can compete against a government monopoly that actually gets so much more money, but it pretends to be free. Because it's from tax money. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's end on this. I don't know if you saw the clip, uh, but um, Marianne Miachuk, the labor minister, I mean, there's two things in this budget that are payoffs. You said who supported Justin Trudeau and how they get the payoffs. Uh, there's $85 million only for union-based apprenticeship uh, training and skills training. There's a return of a tax credit for labor-sponsored funds, which... Even liberal governments at the provincial level got rid of because it was a bad investment. You lost your money if you put it in, but they're bringing that back. And then they're getting rid of union transparency rules. Marianne Miachuk, the labor minister, has asked, show me, or she says, show me where there's examples of of union corruption. Bob Zimmer, the conservative, says, you haven't heard of the Charbonneau Commission? She actually looked at her officials and said, Charbonneau Commission? She had no clue. Yeah. Well, I mean, look... uh Give her a break in saying she's still sort of new in her position. But if you haven't heard of the Charbonneau Commission, you haven't been paying attention. It's one of the largest scandals in Quebec politics. There was new news on it just a week ago. So, Seven yeah, maybe, people arrested days before she yeah. did this. 
in her own liberal party. So, yeah, maybe after four months, it's time she read her briefing notes. But look, this goes to the point that I think is becoming clear. Justin Trudeau likes to brag about his cabinet. Oh, this percent are women, this percent are minorities, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's just window dressing. The people running the show are Trudeau or more to the point, his right hand man, Gerald Butts, his principal secretary, who I mean, I think you're going to see a cabinet and a prime minister's office more centralized, more disciplined, more secretive, less transparent, less accountable than anything Stephen Harper was accused of. But they still have that media party love in it. And again, is the CBC, which just got a six hundred and seventy five million dollar raise. Are they really going to take a hard run at this labor minister or that minister or this minister? No. no. When you're paid by the politicians, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. The CBC is a wing of the Liberal Party. And when you take money from the government, don't be surprised if you pull your punches on the government. It's going to be happening. It's happening now. And that's why this that's why this audience loves the Rebel. Thanks for calling in, Ezra. We'll talk to you again soon. And uh, check out the Rebel.media, of course, for the stories. And... You want to go cruising with uh, Captain Ezra and me as Doc? They did that on Huffington Post, by the way. Rebelcruise.ca. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. On a friendly shore. It's love. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. The College of Nurses in Ontario have come out with new guidelines on physician-assisted death. Like it or not, this is something that is coming across the country. uh, But not all medical professionals, even those who believe that this is something they have no right to object to, they're fine with it coming through, they might have personal objections and not want to take part. Well, the Canadian Catholic Civil Rights League is standing up and saying, hold on a minute. There are problems with the new guidelines. Christian Elia is the executive director of the Catholic Civil Rights League. He joins me now from Toronto. Uh, Christian, what is the main objection that you see for people that have or conscience or religious objections to what is being put forward as the proposed guidelines? Okay, well, it's very simple. In terms of what we've seen with doctors themselves, with the various colleges of physicians across the provinces in this country, and even the recommendations of, of the two federal panels themselves, is they're talking about the, the, the need to make an effective referral. If they're not forced, to, if they won't be forced to do it themselves, but they have to effectively refer to a physician who will. And it's always and, and been e- our position. E- even yeah. that is a bridge too far for some doctors. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a bridge too far for most people who think something through. I mean, there's no reason why one can't make an auto-referral. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's not about negatively judging or forcing one's views on somebody else. It's just, I'm sorry, I won't do it. You're free to go to someone else who will. Making effective referral is it, it's a form of compulsion. If someone finds something morally objectionable in the first place, having to basically do all the paperwork and set everything up, it's just a technicality. You would still be directly involved in what you considered to be objectionable in the first place. So that's with the doctors. And with the nurses recently, it goes even further. 
their guidelines for the nurses suggest that although right now, until a federal law is in place, they're supposed to leave everything into the hands of physicians, but moving forward, they don't actually use the terminology effective referral, but they suggest that if there's no other healthcare provider along, that they'll have to simply just do it yeah. themselves. And yeah. that is outrageous. So I'll quote from page three of the Physician Assisted Death Interim Guidelines for Nursing in Ontario. It reads, if no other caregiver can be arranged, you must provide the immediate care required. Must provide. That that basically says you you have no right to object. And I know that there are nurses, some of them for religious reasons, some of them for morals, some of them because of just how they feel. They don't want to be a part of this. And my reading of this document says you now have no choice. That's the way I understand it as well. In our press release, we kind of tongue-in-cheek suggest that maybe they're referring to care in the way nursing care has always been done, which is caring for the person's life and treating them in order to help them get better. However, we suggest that most likely it's in the new Orwellian type of, uh, you know, guise of medical care being uh, put in uh, in terms of helping to kill someone, which is essentially what it is. Whether you call it physician-assisted death or medical aid in dying is the term that they want to use right now. You're effectively not making someone better. You're not helping them. You're putting them out. Christian, a lot of people will be listening to this and they'll say, wow, it's Holy Thursday. It's just before Easter. You're talking to a Catholic group. Those Catholics, they're just trying to force it. I can tell you I know doctors of no religious faith who simply say, this is not what I signed up for. So whether you're signing, whether you're objecting, whether you're a doctor or a nurse and you're objecting based on the fact that you simply don't want to do this or based on faith-based reasons, I I think you have to allow people to say, no, I'm not going to take part in killing another human being. Absolutely, Brian. And let us remember, this whole concept of assisted suicide, euthanasia, whatever you want to call it, is something that's very, very new. It's something that our hands been almost forced. Um, uh, on by uh, the Supreme Court of Canada. But the Hippocratic Oath has been around, obviously, for many, many centuries. And it's exactly right by saying that they did not sign up for that at all. Um, it's actually worse with the nurses. I feel sorry for them. Over time, doctors, medical students will be able to... It's unfortunate they shouldn't have to do this. It's terrible, but they can perhaps choose their, their, their field of specialization. But nurses who have less power, uh, you know, in the structure and in hospitals and healthcare centers might be forced to do things that they really do not want to do. They do not sign up for it. It's particularly puzzling that the group that's supposed to stand for them is just basically offering themselves up to be put into this vulnerable position instead of defending their rights. And let us remember again, although this is all very new, thanks to the Supreme Court of Canada, we have in the Charter of Rights and Freedom, Freedom of Conscience and Religion. That's always been there. I, I want to ask you quickly, before we're out of time, Christian, I'm talking with Christian Alia. He is the executive director of the Catholic Civil Rights League. The head of uh, Dying with Dignity recently said, we can't have religious values tr- uh, trumping charter-based rights. And they believe that your religious views shouldn't come into this, that assisted suicide is a charter right and therefore Catholic hospitals, Catholic physicians whatever the reason is you should all be forced 
How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, it's deplorable that they're talking in the name of freedom, yet in the same sentence they're talking about forcing and compelling people to do something. And then they bring up the charter. And, and I just mentioned freedom of conscience and religion. And by the way, they're together, conscience and religion. They're not separate. Conscience and religion is there. Uh, someone who doesn't belong to any particular faith group at all, if it's a sincerely held belief, um, you know, they don't have to, it doesn't have to belong to a faith group. They have their conscience. We all have consciences. That's there, and that's in the Charter already. Um, so I'm really puzzled by by this desire to force people to do things. Um, I'm puzzled by physicians who would want to be told what to do instead of being practitioners of of their own practices that they've been able to form over years and mold in the interest of helping people, all of a sudden they're going to be reduced to order takers. Is that the type of society that we want? Is that a true free society? Is that a true form of pluralism where we're being compelled to do something even against our own wills? Again, we're not talking about something that's universally agreed upon as as an international human right. We're talking about something that the Supreme Court overturned despite the fact that 20 years ago, they upheld bans mm-hmm. against assisted suicide. And Parliament, in the meantime, had spoken six different times confirming that assisted suicide should be in the criminal code. So, I mean, it, it's a far-fetched and a far cry. I understand people who are afraid of death and have witnessed people uh, dying in great pain and wonder if there's a easier way to... I understand that, and, and I, I really, really do. But talk about compulsion and forcing people to act against their will and making it sound like those who would be opposed to literally ending the life of a human being, which is literally what it is doing, uh, why they would find that problematic and suggesting that they should be forced. It's just ludicrous. Krishna Lea is the executive director of the Catholic Civil Rights League. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Thank you, Brian. All right, and there is an organization willing to stand up for your conscience rights, regardless of whether you share their point of view. We need more groups like that. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, once upon a time, uh, Britannia did rule the waves, and it was the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Not just England, but the United Kingdom, which in some senses came into being on this day in 1707. That is the latest today in history at the Rebel.media from John Robson. No stranger to this audience, of course. And John joins me now by phone. John, um, I guess you're a bit like me in looking back and saying, yeah, that was the start of Great Britain, or as I think we both kind of refer to it, once Great Britain. Yes, and it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, long been this project, including by James I, one of his few good ideas, to combine the two kingdoms, although he knew remarkably little about England, despite spending a lifetime planning to be its king. And when it actually happened in 1707, there was, everybody was using the Scots didn't want it, the English didn't want it. There was all kinds of trouble finally getting it, even getting Queen Anne to agree to it. And then this magic happens. 
you know, the Scots thought they'd been sold to the hated Sassanacs. The Scots thought they're going to be swarmed by barbarians and office seekers. And instead, you get this rise to greatness. You talk about Britannia ruling the waves, but it also, Britain launched the Industrial Revolution, and the Scots had a huge hand in that. You know, Adam Smith is working on his steam engine in the basement at the University of Glasgow. I said, James Watt. Well, Adam Smith is writing The Wealth of Nations upstairs. And between them, the, the mechanic and the theorist of capitalism as a transformative force, there are something like 15 million McDonald's in the world, and there are only five-odd million people in all of Scotland. It was a huge success for Scotland. But it was also a vital ingredient mixing with the English to give Great Britain that power and its cultural dominance as well. There was no question London was the center of the world in every way in the 19th century. So why aren't people happier? Why didn't they all look at it and say whatever concerns or disappointments we had going in, we, it worked out better than anybody dared hope. It made both of us far better than we could have been separately. Why are so many Scots now saying, oh, yeah, we should leave, or saying, oh, well, why bother? And so many English saying, get, get out, good riddance. It just it reminds, don't understand does, it. It does remind me of Quebec, John. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, how many Quebec nationalists in a calm and reasonable mood could argue that had Quebec never been part of Canada, had they never had representative government, had they never had free speech and free association, and all those things came from Britain, had they never been part of a nation that spans a continent, they would have achieved more in any respect, from prosperity to the role Quebecers played in the two world wars, to the cultural dynamism. It's one of the odd things. Quebecers are so proud of a culture that seems to be so disconnected from their ultramontane Catholic past. Would any of this have come to be if they'd not become part of the Anglosphere? What is it? I've never managed to figure out quite what it is that they feel so badly done to. They're not subject to arbitrary arrest. They're able to oppress English in Quebec, but nobody's oppressing French. And yet somehow they just feel like the whole thing has been a nightmare and they're just waiting for us to go away. <laughs> so to throw it back over to Britain, because on this day, March 24th, 1707, is the beginning of the Act of Union. And it is something that fundamentally changed. Because at that point, Britain was in the ascendancy, but it was not, um, was not quite as dominant as it became later on. Do you think that that jolt which probably took a good 40-plus years, 50 years to, um, to really take hold. Do you think that that spurred Britain into being the dominant force for more than 150 years around the world? Well, I, do, I, I feel as though, to, to oversimplify, some of the English refinement got Scottish energy added to it. I mean, you just have to look at you know, the thin red line at, um, in Sebastopol in the Crimean War. At Balaclava, yeah, and that, of course, the Highland Regiment. But, but there's more to it, some of the, the, the drive of Scottish entrepreneurs and the, the discipline and the focus and the persistence of the English, because it's, you know, the Scots were a byword for backwardness, the Highlanders charging barefoot clothing more. But then you get this 18th century Scottish enlightenment that does infuse the English. And it, I really think it's the case where the, the sum is, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that although England was clearly a remarkable place, and capable of mastering tyrants on its own, in, on its home turf. It's hard to imagine the global reach and the global positive influence without the combination of qualities that the two nations bring. And there are others, too. I mean, people like to talk about Canada being a multicultural experiment. But what about the U.K.? I mean, the, the, the Southern Ireland was always a very unhappy part of the story. But 
you know, the, Wales and Cornwall and all of these very different regions coming together into this remember your British, this kind of very special ability to rise above circumstance, to keep the stiff upper lip, to maintain civilized standards, and to prevail when threatened. There, there really is something extraordinary that, that comes out of it. And I just, I'm so mystified why, how, I mean, something obviously did go wrong. Britain today, and it's better than it was in the 70s, but it's not the Britain even of the 1930s. This, the but, effort but, but of World it, War II bo- exhausted them. You know, if we just focus on the Scots and the English side of it, um, rather than bringing in the Irish question and, and Wales, which is a, a different case altogether, but if we just focus on the Scottish and the British, both have let their national character slip. You know, there, there's a, a poem that the Scots love to recite called uh, Was Like Us, Damn Few, and There Are Deed, where they, they list off, you know, a, and it's done to taunt the English about how the Englishman, you know, slips into his national ring, uh, uh, national costume, a shabby raincoat, but that was invented by a, a Scottish chemist. And, you know, he, he, you know the, the lane he walks to work on was uh, John McAdam invented that. And it goes through all the things the Scots invented. The Scots are nowhere near as inventive or as... Um, entrepreneurial as they once were, but but then again, neither are the English. Their, their response to world affairs, their response to their own home problems, seems to be a faint shadow of what it was. Yeah, I mean, the, the British Navy is smaller than it's been since Henry VIII. The Royal Air Force is smaller than it's been since 1914. And, and the army is dwindling to, to 18th or 17th century numbers to remarkably little protest. And the prime minister still thinks they're world power. And funnily enough, I mean, they do still have the fifth largest economy in the world, which tells you how everybody else is doing. But there's, I think there's just a, a lack of, of belief in their civilization, that all those things that made them great, the, the heroic figures from their past, and now just who's that on that pillar kind of. It's something that it really does seem as though the, the steam has gone out of them. You hear Scots nationalists say, well, we've got to become an independent country. Why? Because we'll get more welfare as if it weren't coming from London anyway, the money to pay for it. But what, a, what an appalling argument for being an independent nation, that we'll get more free money, we can sit around slurping it down, you know, eating stuff we didn't learn. <laughs> what, that, this is, you'd never have convinced the Scots, you know, the thought of Bannockburn, if you'd said, you know what, how about you just give up your independence because you'll get more welfare. This would have been the last words you ever uttered. <laughs> and and they, they would have told you, you know, well, Robbie Burns complaining about being, being bought and sold for English gold. Well, now they're, they're willing to be bought for Scottish gold, apparently. Now, or, it, it seems like it's a low bar. Yeah. And, you well, know, it's just a, a, a nation that's lost its faith and lost its heart and lost its sense of itself as a part of the West. And Great Britain's in danger of just falling apart, not because it failed, but because people just got tired of the success and, and went soft. I'm hoping that uh, with the vote on January 23rd that they'll vote to leave the European Union. Maybe that'll put a bit of uh, spring back in their step. Uh, John, quickly, before we're out of time, I want to ask you, I know you're working on a couple of documentary projects, and of course you did the great uh, Magna Carta documentary last year. Give us a quick spiel on what you're working on now and where people can find out more. Well, they're all part of a series on reclaiming Canada's heritage. We Magna Carta and the Foundations of Our Liberty. Now we're doing one on Canadians' right to self-defense, which we find in the right to arms. 
And then we're working on one about fixing the Constitution. We know where our liberty came from. This one talks about where it came from, but also what has started to go wrong in the 19th century. What went really wrong with Trudeau Sr. in 1982 and how to fix it. You can go to fixtheconstitution.ca because we're not just going to diagnose. We are drafting a replacement constitution that we want to have put to the people in a referendum. We can fix this problem. And if we should stumble into a constitutional crisis with a document that alienates us instead of inspiring us, we need a positive way forward, and that's what we're working on, an analysis of the problem, a solution for it, you know, more provinces, an Australian-style Senate, a real charter of rights that can't be suspended if it's justified in a free and democratic society, because in a free and democratic society, the state can't take away your rights. You know, so I, fix the Constitution.ca and help us make this vision a reality, because we are going to need it sooner, I think, than it appears. Uh crowdfunded as so many great things are now and and john i have to tell you i was thinking about you last night i was talking about the issue of carding and i made the case that the police are free to ask me who i am and to show my id and i am free to tell them to take a hike unless they're arresting me for something and people responded that no that's not a canadian right and never has been you have to give the police what they want and i thought oh wow do we have to get a have a a, a discussion about what our rights really are and people, they say this about our history. On the one hand, like Justin Trudeau, they say we have no history. We're not interested in our history. But then they tell us your history is of a collective nation meek before the police. Fooey. Our history goes back to the British when they were armed, ready to defend themselves, unwilling to see a standing army, and reluctant to arm the police. Well into the 19th century, the British kept their weapons and said the government should not be wandering around with guns asking us intrusive questions. Look at Sherlock Holmes stories. Watson slipped his trusty revolver into his pocket. He just fill out forms about his sex life. This is our <laughs> heritage. And whatever the merits or demerits of being sheep with an all-powerful state may be, it is not true to our Canadian roots. John, thanks for talking to us. Uh, fixourconstitution.ca. That's where you want to go. Fixourconstitution.ca. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. American President Barack Obama says the things he has seen this week will stay with him forever. Let me quote directly. What I saw and heard this week will stay with me forever. What I saw and heard this week will stay with me forever. Given all the news that um, has been going on in the world, what do you think he's talking about? It's not the death of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. He thought about him about as long as Ford was on Jimmy Kimmel. It's not the brutal terror attack happened that happened in Brussels or many of the other smaller attacks that happen around the world. It's not the carnage that the rest of the world is dealing with. He's talking about going to a baseball game, doing the wave with Raul Castro. Yeah, come on down. You're the next contestant on Communism's Just Fine by Me. There was a time when American presidents actually would say things like, Communism doesn't work. And do you know why they would say that? Because it doesn't. But we don't live in that 
time anymore, at least not with the current president. And given that the next two front runners in the Democratic Party, both of whom, according to pretty much every poll by reputable pollsters, would beat Donald Trump in a general election race, well, it looks like we'll just get another socialist in the White House if things remain as they are now. Hillary Clinton has embraced Bernie Sanders' socialism to ward him off, and Bernie Sanders, well, he's a socialist. But there was a time, there was a time when American presidents spoke out against communism, and they did it in a way that made you laugh. In fact, they didn't even worry about making fun of the other side. So I'm going to play for you now some clips of Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, making people laugh while also exposing the problems with communism. Reagan, as you'll hear, loved collecting stories, and he did so as he traveled throughout the Soviet Union. I've been collecting stories that are told in the Soviet Union by their people among themselves, which reveal they've got a great sense of humor, but they've also got a pretty cynical attitude toward their system. And I told this one, Bill, you'll have to hear it again. I told it in the car. I didn't tell this one to Gorbachev. (laughs) You know, there's a 10-year delay in the Soviet Union of delivery of an automobile. And only one out of seven families in the Soviet Union own automobiles. There's a 10-year wait. And you go through quite a process when you're ready to buy, and then you put up the money in advance. And this happened to a fellow, and this is their story that they tell, this joke. That this man, he laid down his money, and then the fellow that was in charge said to him, okay, come back in 10 years and get your car. And he said, morning or afternoon? (laughs) And... And the fellow behind the counter said, well, 10 years from now, what difference does it make? And he said, well, the plumber's coming in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, I'll grant you Obama tells jokes, but can you imagine him telling him one as good as that, as effective as that? That also, there was a moral to the story. And Reagan had tons of them. He was one after another. And uh, one of these stories, the one I'm going to tell you, I told to General Secretary Gorbachev. And he laughed. (laughs) The story was an American and a Russian arguing about their two countries. And the American said, look, in my country, I can walk into the Oval Office. I can pound the president's desk and say, Mr. President, I don't like the way you're running our country. And the Russian said, I can do that. The American said, you can? He says, yes. I can go into the Kremlin, to the general secretary's office, pound his desk and say, Mr. General Secretary, I don't like the way President Reagan's running his country. You know, that's very pertinent considering that uh, Obama has been in Cuba this past week. He's in Argentina now, but he was in Cuba because Cuba, as I may have mentioned, actually jails more journalists per capita than any place on the planet, more than China. And China, they'll arrest you for writing something bad about the country, but people have figured it out, and maybe they, you know, aren't pushing for freedom quite the way they used to after Tiananmen Square. But in Cuba, they do. And you get arrested and thrown in jail. More per capita than any other place on Earth. 
But I'm sure they could walk into Raul Castro's office, bang on his desk and say, El Presidente Castro, I don't like the way President Obama's running his country. That would be okay, but not the dissidents that were arrested just before Obama landed. Let's grab another Reagan joke on communism. Less than one family out of seven in the Soviet Union owns an automobile. Most of the automobiles are driven by the bureaucrats. The government furnishes them and drivers and so forth. So an order went out one day to the police that anyone caught speeding, anyone, no matter who, gets a ticket. Well, Gorbachev came out of his country home, his dacha. He was late getting to the Kremlin. There was his limousine and driver waiting. He told the driver to get in the back seat he'd drive, and down the road he went. They passed two motorcycle cops. One took out after him. And pretty soon he's back with his buddy, and his buddy says, well, did you give him a ticket? And he said, no. What? He said, why not? Oh, he said, to him, important. Well, he said, we're told to give anybody a ticket, no matter who it is. Oh, he said, no, no, this one was to, I could. Well, he said, who was it? He said, I couldn't recognize him, but his driver was Gorbachev. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and uh, now I'm forgetting what this last one is, but, um, well, let's just play. You're going to laugh anyway, because I've been laughing the whole time. One of my visits, I won't name him, I don't want to embarrass him, but one of the heads of state that I met with on this visit, he gave me one while I was on the way. He told me the story about the two fellows in the Soviet Union that were walking down the street, and the one of them says, have we really achieved full communism? Is this it? Is this now full communism? And the other one said, oh, hell no, it's, things are going to get a lot worse. <laughs> That's what we have to remember about communism. As much as we may complain about our own system, things could be a lot worse. Obama in uh, Cuba this week, then down to Argentina, where they don't know what they're doing. They're going back and forth. But just think of Venezuela, another place that Barack Obama really, really likes. Used to pose for pictures with um, with Hugo Chavez. Uh, they um, They run out of toilet paper. Think about that. Don't we all just take that kind of necessity for granted but they run out of toilet paper because the government controls everything and they can't keep it in stock shoppers drug mart does just fine for me but hey i like the capitalist system i'm brian Lilly. this is beyond the news more after this On the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. It's only Thursday. The feet have been washed by now. Tomorrow will be Good Friday. The Easter weekend upon us. If you're celebrating Easter, a happy and blessed Easter to you. We can discuss that, and if you want to call in and you have questions about why we do certain things at Easter, uh, I'm pretty good at answering those. That may not be an ask-the-pastor-type moment, but I'm pretty good at answering those, including why chocolate at Easter? What's with the eggs? What's with the bunny? These have nothing to do with Christianity. Actually, I can explain what they do and why they do and how. So welcome and willing to take your calls on that. But I want to get back to fundamentals. And I was going to open talking again about 
Gian Gameshi, because I, I think this is an important issue that we need to keep focusing on, the, the fundamental freedom aspects that I love to harp on about. But first, let, let's play one of Reagan's jokes again, because that also is getting back to the basics. In one of my visits, I won't name him, I don't want to embarrass him, but one of the heads of state that I met with on this visit, he gave me one while I was on the way. He told me the story about the two fellows in the Soviet Union that were walking down the street, and the one of them says, have we really achieved full communism? Is this it? Is this now full communism? And the other one said, oh, hell no, it's, things are going to get a lot worse. <laughs> things are going to get a lot worse. That's the truth about communism. Now, are we willing to stand up for our own system anymore? 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. What do you think of the Gian Gomeshi decision? You can think he's a creep. You can think he's a bad date. You can think that this is a man that um, you wouldn't want to work for. You wouldn't want your daughter to go out with all of those things. But do you think the system got it right today? First off, let's play some of the reaction that we heard in the news earlier. I think it's ridiculous. These women came forward and were brave enough to tell their story, and they were dismissed for tiny little things, and it's ridiculous. Tiny little things like lying. The judge called them out for lying and deceiving the court. How can you be believed? Our justice system is, are you guilty beyond all shadow of a reasonable doubt? If... If the people coming forward are either A, deceptive, or B, outright lying, how can that happen? But it isn't stopping politicians, including our prime minister, for saying, well, I think we need to look at this a bit more. I think uh, these are the kinds of discussions that we need to be having as a, as a society that values, uh, values equality and, and respect for women. And Tom Mulcair, well, he went even further. Well, you know, I think that... Uh... Our, our legal system has clearly shown that it's uh, having trouble dealing with issues of sexual assault. And I think that we need a new approach. I think that we have to have a s system where the stereotype that uh, women who are bringing forward complaints of sexual assault are not telling the truth. I think that we've got to have a system that addresses that straight on. Okay, but one of the women actually lied to the judge, had to admit that afterwards. The judge called her out for perjuring herself, lying under oath. The other two uh, complainants, the judge came very close. Now, listen to Christy Blatchford, a woman, a seasoned courts reporter who has covered some of the most horrific trials that I can imagine and has been doing so for more than 30, probably getting close on 40 years now, but... Blatchford sat in the court and listened to items like this. Third complainant, for instance, you know, was in a last-minute disclosure, admitted that despite all the things she told the police and the Crown and the judge, she lied under oath to the judge. She said, I only wanted to see Mr. Gameshi in public because I never felt safe around him after the assault, the alleged assault. Well, guess what? She took him home and gave him a hand job consensually one night in her own house, in her own bed. So tell the whole truth. It may be embarrassing. It may be difficult to talk about. But for God's sakes, tell it, because the cover-up is what gets you in trouble, not the original sin, as it were. And yet we have protesters 
Maybe they're just trying to use the media, but we have protesters, not just in Toronto, but elsewhere in the country, protesting this verdict today. Protesting the fact that Jean Gomeshi was found not guilty. It's not the same as innocent. He was acquitted. He is, but since our system is innocent until proven guilty, he is by all means innocent of the charges. Like I said, do you think he's a creep? Maybe. I do. I wouldn't want my daughters dating him. I don't know about you. Yeah. Wouldn't want anyone I know going out with him, even for coffee. But does that mean he's guilty of the charges that were before him? The judge heard the evidence, weighed the evidence, and said no. And now, howls of protest, calls by politicians to change a system that they say obviously doesn't work. Are we willing to throw out innocent until proven guilty? Are we willing to go back to the days of mob rule? Some people are essentially calling for the lynch mob. Have your say. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Guy, the Capital Voice, you're on Beyond the News. Brian, um, I'm seeing a lot of activity on social media tonight on uh, this page 223 with the paragraph uh, recapitalization of the banks. Ezra's even had a late talk about it. Anything you can tell us? Uh, so this is, it was news to me in the middle of the show. Uh, as you know, Ezra and I are in different cities. He was even on the program earlier tonight, but we didn't talk about this. Yeah, it just broke. Um, it is on page 223 of the budget, and it it literally says, introducing a bank recapitalization bail-in regime. I'll read off what it says, and I'll say this, Guy. I think that we need a lot of questions answered on this. It is pause for concern. It is worrisome. Is it the same as what they did in Cyprus? I'm not sure. In Cyprus, they were seizing small people's, well, it sure small is bank trending. amounts. It yep. sure is trending both on Facebook and Twitter, Brian. Well, so a lot I, of people I, are, I will, are saying, I, what? Well, and, and unfortunately, it breaks on a whole, we all notice it. Because yeah. the budget's very long and very boring, and there's a lot, of things, there's a lot of things buried in there. And this is one paragraph that I can read off to you now. And so it's Holy Thursday. No politicians around tomorrow. Maybe we can get more in the morning to ask about it on News Talk 1010 when Justin Trudeau's in. We'll see. But there isn't a whole lot out there. Uh, that we can do to get answers from officials or politicians until next week. So it's going to lead to an awful lot of speculation. And I've been on the lookout for this since the Cyprus thing. So let me read you the um, the paragraph. It says, to protect, to protect Canadian taxpayers in the unlikely event of a large bank failure, the government is proposing to implement a bail-in regime that would reinforce that bank shareholders and creditors are responsible for the bank's risks, not taxpayers. This would allow authorities to convert eligible long-term debt of a failing, systematically important bank into common shares to recapitalize the bank and allow it to remain open and operating. So, worst-case scenario, and this is what we need them to clarify, yeah, if you read that, does that mean they could seize your money? Mm Mm-hmm. Are we talking people that have a million dollars in the bank? A hundred thousand? Fifty thousand? Ten thousand? It really... and, And... Your mileage varies depending on how much money you have in your particular bank. But we need clarification on what this means. Absolutely, Brian. All right. Thanks for bringing it up, Guy. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll get to your calls. 
after the break. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Your thoughts on the Gameshi trial, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. My experience in issues like this is that women are often harder than men on these issues. So I especially want to hear from the ladies of the CFRA Nation. Give us a call at 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Peter in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, Brian. Uh, this whole Gomeshi thing has been very, very sad and very depressing on, on multiple levels. It kind of brings back the uh, shades of the O.J. Simpson trial where he had his dream team, which uh, completely bamboozled the uh, the jurors, of course, and uh, he was able to skate on the murder charge. And then, of course, you know, the lawyers realized, everybody else realized what had happened, so they went back and they got him on the civil charge and they threw him in jail. But I, I, I can understand... These women would not have gone through all this time and trouble if they, if if what they said had happened didn't happen. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are really scratching their heads on this one, and um, you know, on on both sides of the aisle. This is this is a very strange case. Well, in one of the instances, it turns out that the the claim of sexual assault was just plain old assault. Um. I, if there's no sexual activity involved, how does it become sexual assault? Because he punched yeah. you and you were out on a date? I mean, that's kind no, of I, weird. And then and then you keep going back and you're talking about how great things were and you're pursuing yeah, It all becomes very strange on, yeah. on a lot of levels. And then the fact that one outright lied and two, the judge says, attempted to deceive the court. Yeah, there, there, there's two confounding factors that I think that's going on. Uh, number one, I think I think uh, Mr. Gomeshi uh, he, he he tried to use or he was he was effective in using a lot of mind mind control manipulation techniques on these women. And the second confounding factor, which uh, sort of uh, dovetails into this whole mess, is the fact that these women um, I, I, apparently they had interest in furthering their career. So, uh, you know, the, 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 these these were not CBC employees. I believe the one coming up in June may be, okay. but these these were not people that worked for him. I I talked to people that worked for him, and I would not recommend anyone do that in the future. But yeah, so I, I think so, a I lot mean, of there, women are going to there's yeah, a, so. there's a lot of creepiness around this guy. But is he guilty of a crime? And that's well, a the, different the, uh, yes. that's a different bar. And the the weird thing about it, and the reason I bring up this mind control uh, manipulation is. The fact that in the in the in the media apparently he had this teddy bear which he was, he was speaking with and communicating with as a third person, um, I think he was he's very much into the practicing of, uh, of mind control, and I think a lot of these women just got just got very sucked into this uh, nonsense. Well, if if someone that I'm out on a date with starts conversing with a teddy bear and saying I have to turn the bear around so he doesn't see what happens, I'm probably just going to leave. Yeah, that, that's think. myself. Thanks for the call, yep. Peter. Uh, 
to, <clears throat> excuse me, Dave in Ottawa. You're on the program. Yes, thanks again, uh, Brian. Uh, the system is broken, but not in this case. In this case, as you said, the judge got it absolutely right. Uh, there was lies and, and attempts to lie and deceive and mis- misrepresent and all the things. And, and it's innocent until pr- proven guilty and beyond a reasonable you, doubt. As you said, you cannot uh, put a person in jail and give them the the, the name of, of sexual assaulter or anything else, uh, uh, sexual abuser, on, on the strength of that weakness. Now, where the system is broken, it's broken in the sense that uh, we, we, it allows terrorists to run our streets free at large. And so on. Oh, don't worry about that, Dave. We're giving them citizenship back soon. Exactly, yeah. Now, I, I said I was going to comment on Trudeau's response to the Gomeshi trial. Don't forget that Trudeau has come out and, and set, set himself and admitted to being an avowed feminist. So we know where he's going to stand. Well, look, feminist activists of today, sure. But what I think, if people are making false accusations, I think that weakens the case of those who actually did face sexual assault. And and that's why it makes me angry, because raping someone, sexually assaulting someone is horrific, deplorable, needs to be denounced, needs to be prosecuted. And punished, severely. And punished. But false accusations, I think, just weaken everything. And and it, it uh, as, as Christie said, the Christie Blanchard said, that it, it uh, sometimes stops the, the, the real victims from coming forward because they feel that they might be mistreated in court. And and you know that that's a that's a bad situation to have set up based on the experience of people with less lesser uh, accusations to bring. So that's what I'm looking at. All right, thanks for the call, Dave. Thank you. All right, uh, do we have time? Sure, we'll go to quickly to Alan in Ottawa. If you want to have your say, five to one talk five to one eight two five five. Alan, you're on the program. I think he's probably guilty. You think he's guilty? Yes. Okay. Why? Uh, why? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like O.J. Simpson, he got he got through the trial uh, because legalese, you know, he's better lawyers. And uh, I think that the CBC is really going to try and nail him when they get to the next trial. If CBC wanted to um, to really deal with things, Alan, they yeah. would they, they would have cleaned up the mess within their own house rather than having such a very narrowly focused examination because they know and so does everyone else in the business know that the accusations go much deeper than Gian Gomeshi and one issue all right but that's what got uh, OJ was his his attempt to steal back his trophies right it was only to one you know to get to get him but uh my own experience, mm-hmm. uh, one of my exes tried to choke me and tried to kill the person before me and the guy after me. Wow. Now, the cops won't do anything because there's no proof. And I know he's dating somebody else right now, so, you know, what can you do? Uh-huh. Unless you have proof, unless you have pictures of him trying to kill you, they won't do anything. Thanks for the call, Alan. Bye. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Call and have your say right now. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA.
Reading a couple of stories over at truthrevolt.org right now. A man in London, England, is... um, He's been arrested for inciting racial hatred on Twitter. In Britain, you can be arrested for your tweets. I may disagree with the man's tweet. I might wonder why he did it. He apparently tweeted out that... I confronted a Muslim woman in Croydon yesterday. I asked her to explain Brussels. She said, nothing to do with me. A mealy-mouthed reply. Apparently, that's all he did. That's enough to get you arrested. That's a little scary. I had my conversation with John Robson earlier in the program about Britain. Today is the anniversary of the Act of Union, the joining of Scotland and England and the kingdoms of Scotland and England, really the start of Great Britain. And um, I made a comment to John in our conversation that I I look at Britain and I think they used to be Great Britain because so much of what made them great they've thrown aside, including freedom of speech. You can think this guy's right on. You can think he's a complete idiot. He didn't actually say anything in a tweet that would cause that woman harm. And how do you incite hatred? Kind of an emotion. It's tough to measure. Really is tough to measure. And yet Britain, which used to value freedom of speech, no longer does. And I'm wondering if we value innocent until proven guilty anymore. As we hear the howls, and you're going to hear more of them. You heard the promos in the ads for the news coming up. You're going to hear more howls that justice was denied that Gian Gomesh is getting away with it. Maybe he is. Maybe he did what he's accused of. But we have a justice system that says you are innocent until you are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That does not mean all doubt. It means beyond a reasonable doubt. Do you think he did it? What does the evidence say? Do we want to go to a a mob situation? Tom Mulcair, despite the fact that the judge said one of the complainants outright lied to the court and two others, the two others tried to deceive the court, Tom Mulcair, leader of the New Democratic Party, the man that was almost elected prime minister, saying that, well, obviously we need to change our system. Well, you know, I think that uh, our our legal system has clearly shown that it's uh, having trouble dealing with issues of sexual assault. And I think that we need a new approach. I think that we have to have a system where the stereotype that uh, women who are bringing forward complaints of sexual assault are not telling the truth. I think that we've got to have a system that addresses that straight on. Well, let's see. The judge said one of the women did not tell the truth. And I'm not going to play the clip of Christy Blashford again. You can hear it on CFRA's uh, SoundCloud site. It's posted online. You can find it on our Twitter feed as well. I, one of them said, you know, no, I can't, I can't, I was too afraid to see him in public. Couldn't see him in public. I was so afraid of him. Except that time I took him back to my place, which she did not tell the court about, despite being asked. That was a late admission. Where do you come down on this? And you can... You can talk about just Gomeshi, or we can talk about the bigger issue. I think there's a bigger issue picture here. I know some people were on the radio earlier today saying, this doesn't matter to me, doesn't affect me, there's bigger issues. 
All right. Well, if you're not interested in Gomeshi himself, are you interested in whether we have a justice system that goes by emotions and hashtags and public pressure? Or are you interested in a justice system that goes based upon the principles that we have developed over hundreds of years? Christopher writes in via email. And if you want to get a hold of me by email, it's easy. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. Chris writes in all of those women's groups that are, or sorry, all of these women's groups that are latching onto this t- case totally gloss over the actual evidence and spin it to support their cause. While I believe Jean Gameshi is creepy, it can't be automatically assumed he is guilty. If any of the complainants revealed the whole truth beforehand, would this have even made it to trial? A creepy man has been destroyed by the court of public opinion. I bet that the prosecution in his upcoming trial will be calling the complainant and grilling her on every aspect of her claims and if she just happens to leave something out. Sent in by Chris. Like I said, I I interviewed people that talked to me about sexual harassment, about the workplace on Gomeshi's show. We couldn't run those stories. The corporate lawyers would not let us run those stories because we could not prove it and therefore we could not defend ourselves in the event of a lawsuit. There was no evidence. And so while I felt for the women, there there was very little that we could do. Even though I happened to disagree with the lawyers at the time and felt that there was no way that anyone was going to sue in the heat of the moment when all those allegations were coming out. But you have to have facts. You have to have evidence before you go around and destroy somebody's life. That's the way our system works. So my question is, do you think the judge got it right here? Do you think the system worked? If you think Gomesh is guilty, do you want to move to a system where We throw aside the way the court works. I mean, in some ways, we already have, with permission of the court. One of the other principles of our justice system has long been that a person gets to see their accuser. Our Supreme Court ruled a while ago that that is no longer the case. Our Supreme Court ruled that a woman could keep her niqab on while facing her accuser. How can a judge or a jury read the face of someone? I mean, that's part of court testimony. How did they react under questioning? How did they react under cross-examination? What story did their face tell? It's why you're allowed to see your accuser. Because communication is only partly the words we say. It's also how we say them. It's how we react. It's how we interact. But our courts ruled that no, even when accusing someone of horrific crimes, you could keep a niqab covering your face. I think that's throwing out one of the fundamentals of our justice system, but I'm still willing to try and defend the rest. What about you? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Frank, you're on Beyond the News. 
Good good evening, Brian. A couple of things. One will lead into the other. Mm-hmm. You know, a good prostitute that looks after sugar daddy gets better rewarded. Like like almost a billion dollars to mm-hmm. go forth and tell, you know, what's going on and uh, be the government spokesperson. And just tell the news from the government slant. You know, there's a, a guy who once walked out of CBC. He was the anchor of CBC National News. And he left because the government of the day was trying to interfere. The government of the day was trying to have a say in how the editorial decisions were made. Do you know who that news anchor was and who the prime minister was, Frank? I'm, I'm sorry at the time. It's, it, it was back in the 1970s. And well, the that would have been Trudeau. The, the, Trudeau was the prime minister. Yeah. And Peter Kent. Peter Kent, Was yes. the news anchor. He was the anchor of CBC's The National. I believe he went on to CTV, then he went on to Global. Yeah. Um, and went overseas as well. Now he's a conservative MP. I should have him on sometime to talk about that because yeah. um, th- there are ways to get influence. One of them is with money. I yes. don't I don't suspect that uh, Justin Trudeau or his right-hand man, Gerald Butts, is going to call up the way Pierre did. Pierre Trudeau used to call up uh, news organizations all the time. Uh-huh. I've heard the stories from people that were there firsthand. He'd demand reporters be fired because he didn't like what they were doing. Uh-huh. I believe there's a certain liberal senator whose uh, you know, firing was uh, demanded more than once by, uh, by Pierre Trudeau. No doubt. Yeah, Jim, no doubt. Ask Jim yep. Munson if you run into him in the streets. But <laughs> now, now they're paying off CBC. And that's going to guarantee them coverage. Your next point, Frank. Now, now the other one is the billion dollars to CBC, zero to our security services for further security services. Oh, no, 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 no. Eight million. They got eight million. Now, 675 million for CBC. But don't worry, for security, we got an extra eight. Okay. Now, follow the dots here. We got a laddie that is bending over his backside backwards to get a seat on the Security Council. He wants absolutely nothing to interfere with that. F-16s, what did he do with them? F-18s, brought them back. Mm-hmm. What's he putting in over there? How many mosques does he run around? Currently, is he calling the activities going on over in Brussels? Is it a war? No, no, no. He's, here he, is, he is saying it's terrorism, but he will not say that we're at war with radical Islam. Now, 80%, what is it, 80% or more of the UN secure, uh, people at the UN are now from Muslim countries? Well, it, the largest, I don't know about that, but the largest voting, and I doubt that, um, but the largest voting block is the organization of the Islamic Conference. They're 56, 57 votes, plus they have others that vote oh. in alignment with them. Okay, but if you just follow the dots along, you will not allow anything to interfere with him getting a, to get a seat on the Security Council, hmm. i.e., no more money to CSIS and the RCMP to uh, follow people around Canada. That might show him up and get other countries annoyed at him. What? I, I, I can follow your, what you're saying to a degree. I'm not sure about that, you know, the whole of it, but you might be onto something, Frank. Thanks for the call. Yeah, I'm going to ponder that. that. That's worthwhile. Get Ezra working on that. <laughs> Talk to you soon. 
Okay, Brian. Good evening. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. It's snowy outside. It's rainy. So I'm looking at my cruise itinerary. If you listen to the show earlier, you heard me talking about going on a cruise with Ezra Levant. He looks quite fetching in a Speedo, I have to tell you. Okay, that's a lie. He didn't wear a Speedo on the Alaskan cruise. I didn't see him in one. And it's not true. We're not bunking together. Not this time. But you're welcome to come on the cruise with us anyway. TheRebelCruise.ca if you happen to be dreaming of um, something other than snow on the second day of spring. Been asking you about our justice system, and are you willing to say, ah, to heck with innocent until proven guilty. Gamesh is guilty, I know it. Forget what the judge heard, forget what the, sent, uh, what the evidence was, forget the lying complainants. You know, he's guilty, so, like, get him. There was a guy in the lived in the 1700s. All the best stories start with, so there's this guy. So there's this guy named William Blackstone. He was a judge, a jurist, he was a politician, and his most famous work is Commentaries on the Laws of England. Quoted from them many times before, one of the things that he said is, it is better than, uh, that 10 guilty persons escape than one innocent suffer. That goes along with the idea of innocent until proven guilty, and also that it is for the courts to err on the side of innocence rather than the side of guilt. There are places in the world where guilty until proven innocence, innocent would be the norm. I don't want to live there. No matter how creepy I think Gian Gomeshi is, no matter if he gives me the heebie-jeebies and I think he was a second-rate saner, none of that matters. I can think he's the worst boss on the planet. Doesn't matter. What do you think? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Fred, in Rideau View, you're on Beyond the News. Hey, I love the show. You knocked me off my feet when I turned it on. Oh, thank um, you. My name is actually um, Fred, F-R-E-D-E. Okay. Oh, doesn't matter. Okay. 20, no, 33 years ago, I'm just going back to when my son was a baby, I was called for jury duty. Mm-hmm. And it took them... Three days to choose me because I was the youngest, everybody else was older, and it was a date rape case. So eventually I got chosen and I got put in that little, I hated it, those seats. And from that point on, things went downhill. Um, this, this girl who was being, was charging this guy, just um, was being attacked by everybody, including the judge. And every time somebody said something, that judge looked directly at me. 
and I, and to this day, I don't know why, but at one point in this case, he was yawning. That, that really disturbed me because he wasn't paying attention. And then, lo and behold, we get into the back room to make our decision, and the judge overruled it and said he was innocent. Hold on. The jury found? We found him guilty. It took a lot of fighting, let me tell you. But we found him guilty, and guess who got to say that to the judge? Me. And he just looked at us, and he said, okay, leave. We didn't understand why. And he turned to the, the, the cop, and he said, you guys did not do your job, so this case is closed. So that poor woman who really, really was innocent. I, I, I'm not sure a judge can just void a jury decision like that. Well, you know, I, I wasn't either. You know, I, I was I, I've never heard shocked. of that. I haven't talked about this since God for years because everybody said the same thing. They well, said, the judge can't do that. Look, I, I understand that the justice system doesn't always work, and I understand that their rape happens, absolutely. Most people will never come forward. But in this case, you had three complainants, and one of them outright lied and admitted to it in the case. That does not help you win your case when you say, well, he beat me, and therefore I was really afraid of him, and I never wanted to see him except in public. And then you later come back and you say, well, there was that time we were out, and then I took him back to my place, and we went to my bed, and we did stuff. That's what makes me interested in this case. Why the sudden turn? You know, I, that's I think, exactly what happened in the case I was in. There was a turn. Like somebody said something or she said something, and the judge accepted it. didn't matter what we said. It was too late. I, I think that um, an awful lot of people were giving ready to convict Gameshi and believe these oh, God, women yeah. until the trial started. Yeah. And it was the evidence presented, and he does not look good. Not by any means, but I think the evidence presented turned an awful lot of people, men and women that I've spoken to. Unfortunately, only men calling in tonight, but I've heard from a lot of women who said, I don't like what I heard in that uh, coming out of that uh, testimony. And, and, you know, we had, um, I think, only three women on that jury. And you know what they said? I hope no one's listening. <laughs> you know what they said? I hope lots of people are listening. I know they lots said of They asked for it. Yeah, women are tougher on uh, on these, in my anecdotal experience, than men are. Men are tougher. We're out of time. Thanks for the call. No problem. Thank you. Good you, program. You want to get a hold of me? You want to send me your opinion? Couldn't call in? It's easy. Beyond the news, beyond the news at CFRA.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. It's Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly or Twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. And if you get in there, make sure you... You click follow in Twitter or you click the like in Facebook. Get my feed in yours and spread the word because the truth needs to get out. That wraps the show for this week. We'll be back on Monday. Once again, thanks for listening. And as always, remember, I'm on your side. <laughs>